1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm delighted, uh, let me say, right at the start of the show, if uh, my audio sounds a little off to all of you out there, I apologize. We're having some significant technical problems uh, this morning, problems we don't usually face with the great crew of engineers uh, that we have at GPB. Uh, But we're going to get through this show, I think, in in fine form. So I just wanted to, uh, before you start tweeting, uh, sending me emails, let you know that uh, again, that there are reasons why my audio doesn't sound as clean and as clear as it typically does. Um, You know, we have been like many of you out there preoccupied with politics uh, ever since really the start of this year. Uh, The runoff election took up a great deal of our time. Uh, Former President Trump's efforts to overturn the outcome of the election uh, did as well. But now a new president is in office. Donald Trump is back in Florida John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are the state's two newest United States senators. And in all the time we've spent talking about the, um, the political situation in the state, we have not spent the kind of time that all of us on the Political Rewind team have wanted to do about what's happening with the virus. And so today we're going to do just that with a terrific Uh, panel of participants. Uh, Let me start, though, by setting the stage for the conversation. Our our show is pretty well-timed today because it was just one year ago yesterday that health officials in the state of Washington uh, identified a traveler who had just come home from Wuhan, China. He sought treatment at at an urgent care clinic just north of Seattle. He came in with a fever. He was feeling uh, fatigued, and people quickly identified him as patient zero in the United States, the first confirmed coronavirus case. What's interesting about that, if you go back to January 20th and the days after it in the year 2020, is that at the time, public health officials... Um, were somewhat reassuring. They said they believed the risk to the public was still low. They cautioned that more cases were likely to come. And that, of course, is what happened. Uh, Now, nationwide, we are at 24-plus billion cases and over 400,000 deaths, tragically. So, That's the national stage. Um, But before we talk more specifically about Georgia, another reason that this is an important day to be having this conversation is that on his first full day in office today, uh, President Joe Biden is going to kickstart his coronavirus strategic plan. He's got a number of goals, including efforts to protect workers and students. He wants to create an equitable distribution of the vaccine and treatment uh, to uh, to all Americans, minorities, as well as all others. He's going to institute a national mask mandate for federal workers. And he has um, said that he is going to dramatically step up Uh, distribution of the vaccine and of testing, and we're going to watch how all of that rolls out in the weeks ahead. So we'll talk a bit about both, what's happening on the national stage and what's happening in the state of Georgia. Um, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, who is my Thursday partner on the show, is one of the people, unfortunately, who we cannot communicate right now with, uh, but we'll hope that he is able to join us at some point fairly soon. In the meantime, uh, we have with us um, Karen Landman. Uh, she is a physician, an epidemiologist, and a medical journalist. Dr. Rodney Lynn, he is the interim dean of Georgia State University School of Public Health. Um, both of them, of course, have been frequent uh, panelists on the show in the past, and we're glad to have them back. And we're welcoming for the first time, AJC reporter Scott Truby, who's been part of the team at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which has been covering the virus here in the state. So thank you all for being with us. Um, Scott, let me begin with you, because you filed a story this morning that gives us a pretty good look at where the virus stands right now in Georgia. Just give us some of the details of uh, what your reporting showed.
2: Sure. Um, So we got a hold of the last uh, coronavirus task force report under the Trump administration. Uh, Data through Friday showed that we were uh, ranked sixth in the nation for the rate of new coronavirus infections last week. We were 14th in the nation for the rate of new coronavirus deaths last week, up from 43rd a week earlier. And uh, basically our rolling average right now of new confirmed and suspected cases is is about 7,800 uh, that's, uh, that's down from the peak. We we peaked, it appears, at about January 11th uh, at about 9,800 per day, but it's still extraordinarily high, and uh, obviously our hospitals remain um, taxed, uh, and we are now seeing that wave of death that we expected from this surge in cases.
1: Yeah, uh, Karen, I, I was um, – the, the number of deaths in the state and the fact that we suddenly have had such a surge of them is obviously deeply concerning, Karen.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's not entirely unexpected. Um, you know, when people congregate together, um, as they often do around holidays and um, when when the weather is very cold, um, you know, we see more transmission. Um, and that is um, – that is certainly what we have been seeing uh, over the last couple of weeks, but um, or three weeks, I should say. But yeah, it does seem like there is a slow in the increase, and that is um, a small hint of hope that uh, we may be on the way down. I would, um, I would just caution though that that doesn't mean that anybody should let up on any of the good social distancing measures that they're taking. You know, um, one of the unfortunate features of of this sort of unrestrained spread that we've seen is the emergence of um, variants of the virus that may be more easily transmissible. um, And a little bit of growing concern that some of those variants might not um, be preventable by the vaccine. So we really need to keep on um, the pressure to reduce the spread of the virus. And that means continuing lots of social distancing measures, mask wearing and you know, I think we'll talk about this, but I'm hoping a lot of that will be facilitated by some of the initiatives in Biden's national strategy. Yeah, we
1: will. We will, of course, talk about all that. Uh, Rodney, give us your initial impression of the uh, the status in Georgia right now.
3: Well, I mean, I, I would just um, you know, first uh, you know make the point that we're at near all time highs for cases, hospitalizations and deaths. And In some ways, I think, um, I hope this isn't so, but, you know, it's easy to become numb to these numbers. Um, You know, we're we're talking about a potential uh, decline in cases and hospitalizations, but decline from what point? I mean, we are at such a place relative to where we were two months ago, six months ago, and and so on. I I just want to, you know, make a a, a point of talking about the acceleration of the pandemic so that it's clear why it's important what Karen just said, in terms of wearing masks and social distancing. The first 100,000 deaths that we had in this pandemic occurred uh, between February and May. That was May was the, the, the the, over those four months, we had 100,000 deaths. The second 100,000 took another four months to September. The third 100,000 took three months to mid-December, and this 400,000 has only taken five weeks. Um, so, you know, this should be a real uh, you know, cause for alarm, and it really demonstrates the exponential spread that we can have uh, when when this virus really starts to, to to move quickly, and and people are gathering, and, and and so on, as happened over the holidays. So, there's a lot of work to do, uh, and you know, the Biden administration has their hands more than full. Uh, in, in trying to uh, turn these numbers in the right direction.
1: Um, Scott, you know, one of the things that I'm uh, fascinated by with what what, what Biden is proposing, and, and he's got a heavy lift, let's face it, in some of what he wants to do, and we'll talk about uh, uh, vaccines, and the notion that he wants to get 100 million shots in arms in the first 100 days of his administration is an enormous goal that he's set and a challenge, but let's talk about perhaps what you would think ought to be a simpler goal. He's he's setting today a 100-day mask challenge, suggesting that if all Americans would just, for the next 100 days and only 100 days wear masks, he believes that uh, mitigation of the virus would be made a bit easier. And Scott, what I think is interesting about that is of course we're in a state that where the governor has refused to issue a mask mandate uh, saying that he believes that it interferes with the uh the civil individual rights of people to uh, choose how to how to uh, uh, deal with this uh, pandemic Scott
2: well that's right um, the, uh, uh, the governor has said that uh, uh, he believes it's the personal responsibility of all Georgians to follow the guidance that he has provided that public health agencies have provided, and that if we all do it, we will we will you know get past this virus. Unfortunately, we're not all doing it, um, um, and there has been research that has shown that uh, states that have mask mandates uh, have a better compliance record than states that don't. Um, right now, Biden uh, last night signed an executive order to mandate uh, masks on federal property and in some some other limited circumstances. Uh, Biden probably can't do a national mask mandate, and it is up to the states to uh, uh, and, and localities mm-hmm. to to do those kinds of mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bottom line is we know masks are effective, they're not perfect, but part of an overarching, uh, uh, you know, personal protection strategy, uh, social distancing, wearing a mask when you can't distance, uh, avoiding uh, congregate settings indoors, we know we can uh, blunt the spread of this virus. Um, but right now, um, the governor has shown no appetite to to mandate anything related to masks. Um,
1: you know, Rodney and, and and then Karen, both of you, please weigh in on this. Um, I, you know, I think at a certain point we need to stop talking about Donald Trump. He is now the ex president. He's gone to Florida, and 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 there's only so much more we want to talk about his administration. But in the context of Uh, where we stand with the virus right now. Unfortunately, I think we do have to talk about him. And here's the context in which I was thinking about that, Rodney. Uh, Donald Trump uh, was largely responsible, along with many of his Republican enablers, for creating a situation in which mask wearing became a partisan issue. And, And I can't help but wonder, and I know I'm asking you to speculate here, but I can't help but wonder if, say, if Republican governors like a like a Brian Kemp, uh, like a Christie Noom and others, if, if Donald Trump is no longer there uh, making mask wearing and other precautionary measures uh, to prevent the virus from spreading, if he's got no influence over that anymore, is there any reason to think that Maybe Biden really can change the tone and uh, and that people will perhaps start thinking uh, without this partisan uh, lens about the virus. Am I being incredibly optimistic, Rodney, first and then, Karen?
3: Well, Bill, um, I would just say I think it's really unfortunate um, that, that masks uh, were politicized so uh, early and, and at all, uh, frankly. We are... Worst in the world in you know really responding to and managing uh, this pandemic and uh, the issue around masks uh, is is an important part of that um, you know in, in many ways I mean we have uh, you know bans on on you know smoking in public places uh, in in many uh, respects because we uh, really respect the right of the individual to not be exposed to um, you know. Uh, a product that that's harmful to their health, and you know what you're exhaling is harmful. And I think masks uh, are really speaking to that issue as well. That any of us could be exhaling, um, you know, a viral load because we, we're infected and don't know it. And so uh, it makes sense uh, that 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 we should have uh, you know masks as something that our leaders should be promoting uh, and if not even requiring. Uh, so I think it's very frustrating to me, uh, as a public health person, to see what's happened because it, you know, from my vantage point, it has
1: cost lives uh,
3: unnecessarily, and that, that's really frustrating.
1: Um, so Karen, I, I get it. I know that what I, the statement I made was somewhat naive and overly optimistic. I get that the hardcore partisans are not about to change their tune just because a new president is in office. But there are probably people who may not choose not to wear a mask, not for political reasons, but because it's an inconvenience. It feels uncomfortable. And I wonder if watching the inauguration, for example, yesterday, in which virtually everyone was masked, is beginning to set an example that at least some people – Uh, may uh, begin to pick up on.
0: Yeah, you know, Bill, I think you really cannot separate doing any kind of behavior that treats the virus as a real entity from people's politics right now. And, you know, those behaviors include not just wearing a mask, but also, you know, being interested in taking a vaccine, even if you have some legitimate questions about it, uh, you know, uh, and, and doing some other sort of social distancing things. And, and we've seen, you know, since um, since the election and the many challenges to the legitimacy of the election have played out, I think we've seen some, some indication that the foundations of a lot of folks um, Kind of really angry uh, politics, maybe kind of starting to soften a little bit. You know, I have seen um, uh, some coverage of sort of a minority of uh, QAnon conspiracy theorists and super right wing folk politics kind of being uh, a little shaken and confused. And and perhaps some of the, the rhetoric coming from folks on the left, um, you know, that is against folks on the right also softening a little bit. Um, I, I think you know, with all of this, um, with, with the inauguration now in the past, and hopefully the tone changing. My hope is that the tone of people's response to public health guidance may also change a little bit. But I, I think you really can't detach changes in folks' responses to public health guidance from their a response to political messaging. And so I think you really have to imagine. On a local and state level, entwining those two as, as we move forward and try to get people to do the right thing.
1: Uh, Scott, I, I, I want to change the subject, if, if I may, um, with you. Um, I'm, I'm curious ab- about what you're finding uh, in terms of testing uh, in the state of Georgia. I mean, there was a, a period of time, I, from my point of view, it's been a couple months now since when it was it was difficult to get a get an appointment to get a test um, many people were not able to do it i you know, my personal experience has been, and I've had any number of tests at this point, and I haven't had any problem finding a, a a place where I can be tested. But I don't know if I'm representative of the larger population in Georgia. What is your reporting shown on on testing in Georgia and how it's ramped up?
2: Sure. Well, well, testing is not quite the issue it was at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning, of course, we we had. Uh, contrary to the uh, former president's uh, uh, assertions, if you wanted a test, you could get it. You could not. Uh, that was early on in the pandemic. Um, through uh, through the spring, the state built capacity, enlisting the National Guard and Augusta University uh, to ramp up capacity until the private sector and the public health labs in Georgia could could take on more of that burden. And then they kind of rolled off, and public health. Um, you know, uh, and private providers have basically been the backbone of our testing uh, infrastructure since then. Uh, that said, though, you can get an appointment, you can get tested uh, relatively easily, and get results within two or three days. It's still not enough. Uh, you know, we we have a, a test positivity rate, at least of the uh, the PCR test, the gold standard test, that's in the double digits right now. Uh, I think it was about 13, 14% yesterday you know, that's almost triple what it needs to be. It needs to be more about 5% or even 2% to make sure that we are covering the full landscape of of, uh, of people out there uh, to, to capture pre-symptomatic spread, asymptomatic spread. I mean, to to uh, to Rodney's point, I mean, if you don't know you have the virus, you may be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and are going about your day and inadvertently spreading it to people. We don't have a testing infrastructure right now that sort of proactively test people. People have to choose to make an appointment, and then they go and get a test, and usually they do that when they feel sick or they feel like they've been in, a, in an exposure situation. Um, from public health experts I've talked to, you know, we need a broader-based testing strategy than that, some of which is, is proactive in the sense of I go somewhere, you know, or if I, I leave my house, I get tested, you know, uh, uh, just sort of as part of my routine and to capture some of these pre-symptomatic cases before they've had a chance to spread to other people.
1: Um, I want to ask a very fundamental question. Is one that I have not known the answer to, and I think maybe some of our listeners are curious about it too. Uh, Rodney, the PCR test got just described as the gold standard test, as opposed to the rapid response test. I frankly don't, I've never had anything but a rapid test uh, at an urgent care center th- where I go, and I apparently am taking a test that's less reliable. I don't know the difference. I'm not sure our listeners do, Rodney.
3: Right. Well, uh, Bill, the, the rapid test is you know uh, just what it says. We refer to this as an, an antigen test, and um, it's giving you a result uh, right on the spot, the, the PCR test. Is actually taking a specimen uh, or there's, you know, high-tech equipment that's uh, spinning and really examining uh, the contents of that specimen. Uh, And the more they spin it, the more sensitive uh, and accurate, you know, well, it becomes in picking up viral particles. Uh, So there's an optimal uh, amount of spin that they, they put on these samples. But, you know, you're right, the PCR test, which can be saliva or can be a nasal swab, um, is the most reliable It's the gold standard, uh, and that's what, uh, you know, is recommended. The, the antigen or rapid test uh, is also a useful tool. Um, one of the things that we, you know, uh, increasingly, uh, you know, know is that the, the, the rapid test is not as accurate, and now we're, uh, there's some potential suggestion that it may not capture uh, some of the new variants uh, uh, of the virus as well. Uh, as, as a PCR, so um, you know uh, the, the PCR is really what you want. Uh, though there is a often a delay in getting the the, the results, which is a uh, uh, the challenge. So you know you, you're balancing speed of result with um, accuracy. Uh, so so both have a role.
0: Um, I would just add to what Rodney said that the antigen test is great if you have symptoms. Um, But if you do not have symptoms, it is much less great. So um, for asymptomatic testing, the PCR test is really um, probably the the better choice.
1: All right. Um, In a few minutes, uh, we have to take a break. Uh, And and after that, I really do want to talk about uh, the vaccine and and just what so far it seems to have been an abysmal rollout nationally and Georgia's suffering uh, as well, uh, whether through mistakes being made here or just uh, the problems at a national level, I'll let, let the panel talk about. But but before we move past where the virus stands today, Rodney, one of your areas of expertise at Georgia State is in looking at the challenges of, of disparities, uh, health disparities uh, in this country. And it, it, it just... Yesterday, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a study which shows us what we basically already knew, but is is always also worth emphasizing. And and here was the introduction to that study. The disproportionate burden of coronavirus disease on minority populations in the United States is well established. The latest data indicate that age-adjusted mortality rates among Black and Hispanic populations are 3.6 and three-point times, two times higher than for non-Hispanic white populations. This difference translates into almost 30,000 excess deaths among black and Hispanic residents in the United States, a figure expected to increase substantially in the coming months, even under conservative modeling assumptions. That is a breathtakingly uh, troubling uh, paragraph, Rodney.
3: Yeah, you know, Bill, let's be clear. Race
1: and income
3: matter greatly. Um, we uh, have significant uh Uh, inequities uh, in our society, and uh, those existed before uh, COVID-19, before this pandemic, and what this pandemic has has done is really to uh, expose uh, our failures in really addressing uh, these issues and ensuring that people have equal access to resources and opportunities. And, you know, so long as our society um, is not adequately tackling uh, the challenge of, of poverty, the challenge of uh, racial inequity, the challenges of, of structural and, and, and race, racial um, structural racism. Uh, we're going to continue to see these these challenges. We need to be sensitive to this as we are, um, you know, managing our rollout of of, of, that, of, of the vaccine. Uh, you mentioned the the rates of uh, you know deaths among uh, African Americans. Uh, those numbers hold for hospitalizations and for cases uh, as well. Uh, so those are really troubling, and uh, we certainly have to um, think about the ways that we are both communicating uh, and providing the resources and access that's needed uh, for uh, those that are on the front lines in terms of essential workers and, and, and placing uh, testing and vaccination sites in communities uh, that are more likely to uh, have a disproportionate
0: impact yeah, and uh, you know, I think it's it, as much as the uh, virus has had a greater impact on communities of color and um, and especially rural communities of color and rural communities in general, a gr- equal concern is the fact that vaccine hesitancy disproportionately affects these communities. Um, and I think going forward, it's going to be really important to devote a lot of resources toward uh, addressing the, the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing in these communities so we can actually try to prioritize them for, um, for vaccine um, and make sure that the uptake of vaccine in those communities um, helps kind of stanch the, the tide of cases there. But I know you have to take a break. We can talk about that more in the next part of the show.
1: Well, thank you for giving me that opening, Karen Landman. Uh, We're going to do that. I do want to move on and talk about the vaccine. And in fact, this conversation about the disparities in death rates and cases in uh, minority communities is actually a good lead-in to talking about how the vaccine is being distributed or not being distributed. Uh, We'll get to that and a lot more as we continue on today's Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Just to remind you, we're having some technical difficulties, which means that Kevin Riley, unfortunately, we cannot bring him into the uh, program today, which is unfortunate because the AJC has done some outstanding reporting about the virus in Georgia. Uh, Fortunately, we are joined. Uh, by one of the reporters who's been covering uh, the virus for the AJC, Scott Truby. We're also joined by Dr. Rodney Lynn of Georgia State University and Dr. Karen Landman, uh, a physician, epidemiologist, and medical journalist. Um, So, uh, Scott, let's talk a vaccine in the broadest sense right now because you've been one of the reporters who's been looking at the rollout here of the vaccine in Georgia. Let me just uh, uh, quickly point out that uh, the New York Times is one of the many uh, publications that's been tracking the distribution of the virus so far. And uh, as of, I think this is yesterday, uh, they say that uh, some 16.5 million shots have already been given across the country uh, and 36 million doses have been distributed. Um, So uh, we'll talk more specifically about Georgia. Georgia is on the low end, Scott. Uh, Georgia has just given about 400,000 shots as of right now, um, and only about 3%, a little more than 3% of the population here has gotten a first shot. Um, Scott, how would you characterize, I'll let you put it in your words, The rollout of the vaccine in Georgia, first in terms of numbers of people who are getting it, and second in communication about what you need to do to get the shot.
2: Yeah. Uh, One quick clarification: Uh, Georgia Department of Public Health this morning uh, reports that they're at about 535,000 vaccine doses administered. So there, there is it's a little bit better than what the New York Times has. This morning, but but obviously Georgia's in the near the bottom of uh, getting doses into arms. Um, the bottom line is, I mean, the the, the the we're measured as all states are measured by per capita distribution, and we're not doing as well as other states. Um, part of that is. Um, uh, you know, there were we don't have a great public health infrastructure in local communities and counties. They're they're strapped right now. They're doing testing. They're doing other diseases. They're doing now vaccine distribution. That's part of the problem. Um, we we also know that you know we're we're kind of undercounting how many doses we've given because we have an antiquated reporting technology uh, called Grits through the state of Georgia, which uh, has been a del- uh, providers have had a devil of a time uh, reporting their numbers. So that's kind of setting us back a little bit, too, in terms of what is actually appearing uh, uh, and reporting nationally. But the bottom line is we're just not getting enough shots into arms. Um, and, you know, we we do, I do think we can do a lot better, um, but uh, it's going to take more resources and it's going to take more money. And uh, the governor's going to have a press conference later on this afternoon. Hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about what their plans are.
1: Rodney, uh, let me turn to you and then Karen on this. Um, Just yesterday, uh, the AJC had a story uh, talking about uh, at least one individual who was given an appointment to get a shot in one of the locations, one of the county public health uh, facilities that were offering shots. He showed up. He was told, uh, no, there's not vaccine. He's He's not on the list. I had a strange situation in which I was able to get my first shot by a fluke. Um, I'm old enough that that I fall into the category where people can't get shots. But, Rodney, there's confusion here. People are desperate. People who are over 65, people who are frontline workers, they're scrambling to figure out where to go to get vaccinated, and it's become like vaccine roulette, Rodney.
3: Yeah, it's it's a mess, uh,
1: Bill. I'm not sure there's another way
3: to uh characterize it uh let's sort of think about this uh from an infrastructure standpoint and from a a system standpoint um we uh have in the state of georgia the second greatest number of counties of any state in the country uh, only behind texas so we've got 159 health departments uh i think we have over a thousand sites that are uh distributing vaccine uh and so It's a large distribution network, but the problem uh, is that we have clinicians and public health uh, professionals having been working on testing, uh, a medical response, data and reporting, uh, and now they're being asked to stand up vaccinations. And from a a federal uh, standpoint, a start would be to assess the assets and resources that are available to quickly uh, distribute the vaccine, uh, so the federal government should be working with states to, to, to assess that across the states and really to um, use uh, the assets that are available and the places where there's capacity to roll out lots of vaccine quickly to really resource those and make sure that happens. What we have right now is uh, a, a mass distribution of vaccine uh, to a, a large network of uh, providers and sites that have varying, uh, greatly varying capacity to actually schedule people, uh, administer the vaccine, uh, report what's happened. And so it's a real uh, mess at the moment, which was my uh, initial point. So, you know, it's never too late for um, leadership and planning and uh, assessing what the assets and resources are and creating a distribution plan uh, that leverages uh, those assets and resources. So that would be my suggestion, is that uh, we not continue uh, to just hope things get better, that, that we uh, really rely on federal and state leadership to make sure uh, that happens. Uh, it is a bit of a, uh, a challenge if you're out there trying to figure out uh, where to, to get a vaccine and how to schedule. Uh, you know, if you go to a pharmacy, the, the, the phone's not working, you got to show up in person, put yourself on a list. Uh, the health departments are overscheduled. There are lots of real challenges, and so uh, there's a need for leadership here. Uh, and the, the federal government and the states are really going to have uh, to to do that and not not expect the local uh, the localities to to handle all of
1: this. Uh, Karen, let me uh, ask you uh, to weigh in on this, but let me add a layer to this. Um, it strikes me that the, there are kind of two different issues here. Um, one of the issues is simply whether any state, um, well, let's look at Georgia specifically because some states are getting more supplies than others, Uh Georgia would argue, Governor Kempis argues, they're simply not getting enough doses from the federal government. So that's one issue, how you deal with the supply of, of vaccine coming into the state. But the other is a communication issue, how clearly or not clearly public health departments are informing Georgians about the procedures uh, under which they can get vaccinated, um, what the, uh, the problems they might face are. So it strikes me there's a communication problem at the state level as well as the supply problem too, but you know more about this than I do, Karen.
0: So first to the supply problem, I think there's no doubt, that first of all, the Fed controls the supply. That is not up to Georgia. But, um, but you know, even if you account for some undercounting by the, the federal government, uh, uh, the number of doses that Georgians are actually getting in their arms, there's still about 20 percent, I believe, according to some folks, 20 percent of the vaccine that Georgia has that still is uh, not Going into arms right now, um, and I think you know that really is is um, a product of, uh, like you said, the communication piece. Understand that this has been a problem dumped on the health district uh, health departments in Georgia. So the state department, uh, state health department, has basically um, had to uh, give the responsibility for setting up an entire mass vaccine distribution system to these districts who have not been given additional manpower or additional resources to set up these facilities, to set up websites. You know, they don't have the capacity to do this on their own, but they are nevertheless having to do it. So it's an enormous list. I I would take some hope from uh, the part of the, the national strategy that... Recommend deploying the National Guard and uh, potentially a public health service core out to these, um, to these districts, not just in Georgia, of course, but nationally, to help support uh, local health departments in, in doing this work. But asking them to do it without any additional support. And you'll note that to me and in, uh, in her testimony before the joint appropriations hearing the other day at the Georgia Legislature. Um, didn't ask for an increase in the uh, health department's budget. So there's no additional funds, even being asked for in the future, to do this. Um, so it's really an enormous amount um, um, to be able to do this all by themselves.
1: Um, Scott, I, I, I don't know that it was your Byline uh, on this particular piece. But not long ago, I was struck by, an, uh, by a couple of sentences in an AJC article about uh, vaccine distribution in the state. Quoting a public health, a state public health official, uh, the comment was, and this was just a couple weeks ago, we're thinking about setting up drive through locations where people can be vaccinated. Now, this probably didn't come, this quote was not much longer ago than the beginning of this year. We have known, as the federal government has, for six months that a vaccine was likely to be approved and manufactured and ready for distribution by the end of the year. And to read at the beginning of 2021 that a state public health agency is now thinking about how they should be setting up drive-through facilities strikes me as... So troubling, it's hard to even uh, uh, describe,
2: yeah, well, I mean we we do have through the testing you know infrastructure drive through settings that I think county departments are starting to transition to either vaccine only or jointly vaccine and and testing sites. but but no, you're right. I mean we 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 have limited resources. that is true, and to Karen's point, we're not adding money apparently to the Georgia public health budget. Uh, though maybe money will come from the federal government soon, um, we could have had a more creative rollout uh, to to jointly handle testing and vaccine. We could have surged with the national guard there there are other <coughs> avenues that could have been done um, and they just they they weren't and and in some areas you just had very sparse public health infrastructure, particularly in rural areas that you know, they had to decide, do I test or do I vaccinate? And they decided to vaccinate. And and I sympathize with those departments because they did not have another choice.
0: And I would, thank you. Um, I would also say, you know, we're talking about this as though the sole purpose of uh local and district health departments is to do COVID work, <laughs> to do the testing and vaccine work. In reality they do so many other things. Not only do they do you know, respond to local public health issues, but they do a huge amount of administration of WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children Nutrition Program. They do a lot of HIV testing and treatment, TB testing and treatment, STD testing and treatment. All of these things, uh, you know, they're trying, many of are trying to maintain these activities, but they're all falling by the wayside as people are being marshaled into this, um, this effort to deploy vaccine and testing at the same time. But again, they do not have the manpower
2: and resources to do. Yeah. Uh, one thing I was struck by is, you know, I think it was, uh, um, I think it was Fulton County. I mean, they, they got a few hours' notice that that uh, they were going to be uh, expanding, you know, testing to include more people and then suddenly had to, you know, set up a, a, an appointment scheduling apparatus and, and testing and vaccination sites. So, you know, it's it's been a massive rollout. And, and um, you know, one thing we haven't seen, I mean, yes, the governor has done, uh, press conferences with Dr. Toomey, and 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 they they've, they've gotten the messages out there, but there's not been a, a, a an overarching public health messaging campaign that's on billboards and in television advertising and web advertising and, and Facebook. Uh, there just hasn't been a devoted uh, a devoted effort to to that that would um, that would help clear up some of these issues, whether it goes back to testing or now into to vaccination
3: yeah, I just want to you know emphasize uh, or add weight to what Karen and, and, and Scott are saying here. What we're really doing is asking the people in the trenches, the people on the front line who are, are, are doing the hard work every day, taking the fire as it, as it were, those cannot be the same people that are developing the overall battle plan. It just that's not going to work. Um, there's not the capacity to be on the front line and thinking about the larger system uh, of distribution. Uh, As I said before, there's got to be an assessment of the assets and the resources and then the infusion of the support to stand up the sites and and roll this up much quicker quicker than it's happening and to communicate with the public, um, you know, much more effectively about where to go, when, who's eligible, uh, that kind of information. So, uh, we've got a long way to go here.
1: I, I, I've got to get to a break, but but I want to thank all three of you for pulling me back, I think, from the cliff a little bit here. I, I, I think I uh, sound kind of awfully critical about uh, how how the county public health departments are handling all this, um, and, and maybe to some extent for, for some good reason. Uh, but but I, I thank you for reminding me that they have a lot to do. Uh, that there is not, number one, until Biden rolls out his plan, a coordinated federal response that gets more money out to states to be able to pay for these, uh, for vaccinations and other aspects of COVID work. Um, we we have not so far uh, seen a coordinated, I don't think, a uh, uh, state ability to get everybody on the same page. So, So thank you for reminding me that uh, this is a much more complicated problem, but I do think I represent sort of a feeling of frustration that a lot of the people in our listening audience uh, have right now, and maybe this is helpful to them to take a deeper breath and see what happens next. All right, we got to get to a break. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. We'll get back to our conversation about the uh, state of the virus, vaccines, uh, testing here in the state of Georgia in just a minute. But, you know, before we do, uh, we have been talking, I've been talking on the show for more than a week now about um, how in these difficult times, the notion of finding in each of our lives some small comforts that give us a little bit of joy, give us some relief from the gloom that has been surrounding us in the pandemic and our politics. And we've encouraged you to send us the small comforts that you are turning to. And um, I always run out of time at every show to be able to share any of what you sent me. So before we finish up talking about COVID, At least today, I want to read you one small comfort that I got as an email, and you can email me. uh, Just my email address is B-N-I-G-U-T-G-P-B. You can also call us and leave a voicemail at 404-685-2426. Tell us your name and where you're calling from. But here's just one of them. Carol Schneier <laughs> said, I thought this was great. My small comforts come from home improvement projects while listening to Political Rewind and other radio news. During the late summer, it was the RBG floor laying quarry tiles in my great room during uh, Ralph ba- Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Ginsburg's funeral arrangements uh, and about the replacement for her on the Supreme Court. During the fall, it was election timber cutting up down trees from tropical storm and uh, and pulling privet in my yard. And during December, she said it was the runoff wall bin building a small cupboard to hold gloves, hats, and scarves. So we thank you, uh, Carol, and I'd love to hear from more of you. Uh, Okay, back to the panel. Uh, Karen, uh, now, one of the concerns of people who've had a first shot is uh, they're suddenly desperate because there's no way they think they're going to be able to schedule an appointment for a second. So a couple of questions, medically oriented questions about that, because we don't know what's going to happen to supply in the weeks ahead. Once you have had, I think I'm right, the Pfizer vaccine, the first shot, 21 days later, you need the booster. Uh, Moderna, it's a 28 day uh, period without regard to whether the uh, they're going to get their supply can you Are they talking about mixing and matching? If people don't get the second shot within a reasonable period of time, are they not going to be protected? I mean, Karen, there are lots of medical problems that I think we haven't had enough time to study and get data on, have we?
0: Yeah, I, I have not heard anybody endorse mixing and matching. Um, but honestly, I'm perhaps not as up to date on that piece of the conversation as I could be. I think, um, you know, it certainly has not been tested, uh, so I, I think any mixing and matching would really be a, a, an experiment in vivo, which is not not what we really want to be doing right now. I, 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 um, I am hoping that under the new federal plan um, that there will be a, a great ramp up in production um, using perhaps... Uh, the the uh, I forget the exact name of it, the Defense Production Act, um, that 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 we will be able to pour new resources into ramping up the amount of vaccine that becomes available to states, um, so that people can get the their second vaccine at, at, of the same brand as uh, as the original uh, vaccine they got. There was good coverage yesterday in the AJC of. Um, Concerns about getting a second appointment, that a lot of people were not made a second appointment um, after their first appointment. And people do need to get that second dose in order to have really a, a protective immunity from the vaccine. For it to really work, you need that second dose. Johnson yeah. & Johnson hopefully will be rolling out um, some data that uh, proves their vaccine it has high efficacy in the next few weeks. And um, that would mean that a single dose vaccine would be available on the market um, a few weeks after that, as soon as FDA approves it. So, you know, I think there's hope that this will be simplified in the future, but for now I would say get a second dose of the same vaccine that you got a first dose of for full protection.
3: Yeah, I think Karen is right, and I I would, you know, just just add here that, um, you know, with a second dose, we're looking at 90 to 95 percent, you know, uh, effectiveness. If there's no second dose, for instance, the Pfizer um, vaccine is uh, roughly about 50 percent effective. So, you know, um, that's still significant. Um, uh, We we want people to get a second dose, uh, get it uh, when they are supposed to get it. Um, But but there's going to be some protective effect, uh, even if that doesn't happen. Um, I I, want to be clear that Uh, We should do everything to make sure people are getting their second dose in a timely way. Um, I also just want to quickly say, um, Bill, because I think uh, some of your listeners may want to really know where do I get vaccinated, who's eligible, that sort of thing. So I think um, I just want to share a couple of things that I use as resources. Uh, uh, The website dph.ga.gov, which is the State Department of Public Health. There are two things on there that I look at very regularly. One is the vaccine locator. Uh, that's a resource. But the other thing is the vaccine orders list, which is listed, which lists every site in the state that has vaccine. It tells you which vaccines they have and how much they have. And I believe this is updated every Monday. Um, uh, so that's a good place if you want to uh, really look at in your county or the area you live where Uh, There is vaccine. Uh, How to schedule is going to vary from place to place. Uh, So you just have to sort of, uh, you know, be persistent, make phone calls, go to websites, uh, and so on. And, you know, hopefully the the system improves. But that's where we are right now. I think that will be a a good resource for, for listeners.
1: I am really grateful to you for sharing that. Uh, 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 Sam and Amelia, I know, will be more than happy to uh, post a link to the State Department of uh, uh, Public Health uh, website to be able to keep track of all that. Um, Scott, uh, you, you mentioned that the governor's holding a news conference later on this afternoon. Uh Reporters don't like to tip their hand about what questions they're going to ask elected officials, but what are the most pressing questions you imagine reporters in terms of the COVID uh, crisis should be asking the governor this afternoon?
2: Um, I mean, have you heard of, uh, you know, what the allotment is going to be of vaccine um, in, in you know, any updates from the federal government, from the new Biden administration? Uh, I mean, I know they're still wrapping their arms around operating government, but you know, b- before the Trump administration moved on, they talked about releasing the reserve. Then it turned out there wasn't a reserve. So what is our allotment going to be? Uh, uh, Dr. Toomey said uh, earlier this week that they really don't have a clear sense week to week how many doses that Georgia is going to get. That's a big problem. Uh, and our we need to be asking that of our state leaders. Our state leaders need to be holding the federal government accountable as well. Um, so that's one big thing. Uh, what what are we going to be doing to have a more centralized or more coherent Scheduling system and and uh, you know what are we doing to uh, broaden distribution? I mean those are some of the questions I think that my colleagues who will be at the press conference I actually won't be there today, but uh, uh, my, my colleagues at the paper and other news organizations I think those are going to be some of the questions they'll want answered by uh, Governor Kemp and Dr. Tim. Uh,
1: on a national basis, of course, throughout the day today, we will all be watching all of us in the journalistic community, obviously, to see the rollout of the Biden covid strategy the the 21 points uh or uh, uh, i think it's somewhere in that neighborhood uh, uh what he wants to do to nationalize this effort to get money to the states more vaccine produced and out to the states testing uh it's going to be uh, really a fascinating thing to watch what happens there we're completely out of time Uh, Scott Truby, Rodney Lynn, Karen Landman, thank you for a great conversation today. We'll be back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, keep wearing your mask. See you tomorrow.